Open your cerebral cortex and shift your lobes into upper beta phase because you are going to have Bitcoin knowledge transmitted directly into your vestibulocochlear. Your host of Bitcoin Knowledge is Trace Mayer, an early Bitcoin advocate since it cost a quarter, but this is not intended to be investment advice. A doctor of jurisprudence, but this is definitely not legal advice. And an investor in core cryptocurrency infrastructure, including Armory, BitPay, Kraken, and Mitagio, but this is not a recommendation of those services. Here, you get fed via direct mind download with pure and free Bitcoin knowledge. Welcome back to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast. We have an, an, an excellent interview, uh, very timely, uh, with John Rabino. He's author of five books. The latest is The Money Bubble, also author of uh, The Coming Collapse of the Dollar, and runs the popular financial website, dollarcollapse.com. Uh, welcome to the podcast, John. Hey, Trace. Great to be back. Yeah, so... I mean, yesterday, Monday, uh, August 24th, we saw so much intraday volatility on the Dow. It opened 1,100 points down. It it went all the way positive, up and down, just choppy, hundreds of points of differences here. The financial markets worldwide are in commotion like never before. Why is this? Well, this is just what you get when you borrow too much money. Now, it- People of a certain age will um, note some similarities between what happened in the last week and what happened in 2008 and in 2000 and in um, 1990 before that. And that, when, when bubbles blow up to a certain level, when people have borrowed so much money that they, they clearly can't pay back all their debts and they start doing crazier and crazy th- crazier things in order to uh, to avoid the inevitable collapse, that's when you get this kind of volatility. And so what we're seeing is completely to be expected based on what happened since the 2008-2009 crisis. You know, instead of getting our financial houses in order around the world, we just borrowed a lot more money. You know, a McKinsey and, and company report just came out that, uh, that concluded that uh, global debt went up by $57 trillion since 2008. So in other words, the, the debt crisis that almost destroyed the global financial system in 2008 um, sent us apparently exactly the wrong lesson, which was uh, that, that we should borrow even more money. So we did that, especially China. They borrowed more money than anybody else since then, something like 15 or $20 trillion, depending on how you, you calculate what goes on in their shadow banking system. That's an amount um, as big as the U.S. economy which is clearly too much money for a a developing economy like China to manage. And so now they're the epicenter of the crisis because they're seeing increasing instability in their bond markets and stock markets and, and, uh, you know, private sector in general. And so their equity markets are now reflecting that huge spikes followed by crashes. And, and uh, that's normal. Somebody always, begins the new crisis with this kind of volatility. So what we're seeing in China and what is spreading to the rest of the world is how this system will end. I'm not saying that it is. Maybe it's just a blip on the way to, uh, you know, higher prices in a bigger bubble that blows up later. But this is how it'll look when things start to fall apart. So um, one, it should be completely um, expected that we're going to go through this. And two, 
if we have another couple of weeks like this, the global financial system will absolutely fall apart. You know, we, we are too fragile to manage a, a major equities bear market or a, a bond bear market if interest rates start to go up or a currency crisis if one of the major currencies start to fall. Um, we, we can't manage any of the big things that are going to happen eventually. So when one of them does, this system craters. I mean, and, and, I mean, we're already seeing this happen, aren't we? Puerto Rico missed some of their debt payments. Uh, the pigs, you know, Portugal, Ireland, Greece, Spain, uh, oh, you know, having, having their budget deficits and, and debt crises over there. Uh, then we've got, uh, China absolutely imploding. And then on the periphery, we've also got things like the Kazakhstan Tang, you know, going down 20% in a day. Yeah. So, you know, I, I mean, I, I kind of had my thesis in The Great Cutter Contraction that I published in 2008. I think it dovetails very nicely with your book in 2004, The Coming Collapse of the Dollar, where your central thesis is this idea of competitive devaluation. Uh, can you perhaps explore that a little bit in this context of what's happening, you know, a decade later after you wrote the sure. book? Sure. When, when a country borrows too much money, it basically runs out of options. And it's left with only one final tool, which is to devalue its currency. So you, you make your currency 30 or 40 percent less valuable, and that makes the real value of your debts uh, commensurately smaller. So you are able possibly to sell more stuff overseas because you're pricing it in a cheaper currency, bring in a little more money, and, and in that way, cover your debts, get you through the, um, the next election cycle at least. And so what happens when the whole world borrows too much money. You see competitive devaluations where everybody comes to the same conclusion that they got to cut the value of their currency. And so one country does it and benefits for a year or so uh, at the expense of its trading partners, but then they're forced to respond in kind. And so you've got this back and forth of one, one currency plunging and then another plunging and another spiking because uh, the other ones are plunging against that currency. And so lately it's been the dollar that's been spiking. And now we're beginning to suffer from having too strong a currency. You know, the economy is slowing down a bit here and, and uh, we're seeing financial instability um, and we're seeing the dollar just lately tank. You know, and in the last week, part of the financial instability around the world um, was derived from or, you know, or caused falling dollar. And so these kinds of currency instabilities will go round and round from one country to another until everybody either one figures out that it's the policy of all the major countries in the world to devalue their currencies and then just loses faith in those currencies. And so you get a, a, a currency crisis in which nobody wants to hold the, uh, the euro or the yen or the dollar or the yuan anymore. And they instantly convert their currency when they get their paycheck into into real stuff. So everybody just goes out and shops, they buy things. And so that manifests as hyperinflation, but what's really happening is the uh, the confidence in the currency is collapsing. So that that's one scenario. Another scenario is that everybody comes to their senses before the Austrian economics crack up boom happens. And, uh, and they all, devalue against the one thing they can devalue against without hurting each other, which is gold. And this is Jim Rickard's currency war scenario where everybody um, devalues against gold and then goes back to some kind of a commodity standard, like a gold standard, um, at which their currencies 
are much cheaper. In other words, we the price of everything is much higher, but the currency is stable going forward because from then on it's linked to something that holds its value like gold. So that our, our um, future involves probably one of those two scenarios. Um, there are some lesser scenarios that are also possible, like a, a 1930s style debt collapse in which all the debts out there, all the bad debt just collapses at once, everybody defaults, and we drop into a, a capital D depression, uh, which is, that's also possible, but it's, um, it's less likely because the world, for the first time ever, is armed with unlimited printing presses across the board. Everybody, every major country can create as much new currency as they want to, so they will do that before they allow a, a 1930-style depression to happen. So that that the beginning of that would lead to a hyperinflation. So anyhow, instability is our future. We don't know the the exact details of what kind of instability we're going to see, but it's reasonably certain that what we saw in the last week is going to be replicated on a bigger and bigger scale until it resolves somehow. Now, a lot of that has to do with the work that came out of Frederick Hayek about how central banks really exacerbate the business cycle. Uh, that Austrian School of Economics, the Austrian business cycle theory kind of lets us understand. So, you know, really we're, of course, the, these, the amplitude of these waves are just going to keep increasing until it just shakes the whole building apart, is, is, your, yeah. is your argument. Yeah, because basically you're dealing with human nature, which, which by now is pretty clear uh, is corruptible. <laughs> you know, you give us power and we start to misuse it. So what we've done since 1971, when we broke the final link between major currencies and gold, is uh, we, we've given the governments of the world unlimited credit cards, in effect, because they were able from that point on to create as much new currency as they wanted to, which means that every time there's a war, every time there's an election coming up, or every time there's any other kind of problem within the um, a given country, their response is to create a whole bunch of new currency, toss it out into the banking system, and in that way, paper over whatever problem that uh, they've got going at the time. And so every country has been doing this for 30 or 40 years now. And that's led to, as you said, an increasing amplitude of booms and busts because each bust is, um, is starting with a higher amount of debt in the system, which means it's a, it's a bigger crisis, which means it has to be countered with even more new currency creation and even more new credit. And so as the amount of debt in the system goes up, the, um, the booms get bigger and the busts get bigger. And now we're at the end of that process, or I hope we are. You know, I actually thought the, uh, the 2008 crisis was the end, that we couldn't take on any more debt from that point. And we did it. We did it again. For, for five more years, we have increased the amount of, the debt, uh, of debt in the system um, at a near exponential rate. Well, is so, I mean, isn't a lot of this, you know, through through governmental policy, we're we're privatizing the gains but socializing the losses with these bailouts. In effect, oh, yeah. you know, we're keeping we're keeping obsolete businesses that fail to innovate in business, uh, and and we're taking away from productive businesses in order to do that. 
And so, you know, this, this kind of raises an issue, you know, what about a release valve? You know, if, if we're going to be moving or transitioning from a debt-based monetary system to an equity-based monetary system, you know, instead of using a debt-based instrument like the dollars or euros, using something like gold or Bitcoin, uh, you know, a financial innovation, uh, are you talking about, you know, having a release valve or, as Jim Rickard says, you know, the people who want to exit the system before that critical threshold is reached, they can at least get out and begin operating or protecting themselves away from or can uh, or be able to at least firewall themselves away from a lot of the damage that's going to be caused by these legacy systems that, as Mises wrote 100 years ago, there's no way to avoid the final crack-up boom. Uh, you know, to, like, w- what's our option? We just try to, try to uh, protect ourselves? We, all, well, we know it's going to fail, but we just have to protect ourselves. This is where technology makes this story even more interesting because um, the the original Austrian conception of an inevitable bust following a um, a debt binge um, was pre-internet, and so now we have um, cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin out there, and we have gold-backed currencies like uh, what Bitgold is creating and what uh, Peter Schiff's Euro-Pacific Bank is now offering. And uh, to an extent, these things offer, um, as you said, a safety valve. It it allows people to opt out of the current fiat currency debt-based banking system right now. You know, you can set up an account with uh, your Pacific Bank. You can't if you're an American citizen, but most of the rest of the world can. Um, And, you know, you deposit gold and then you spend that gold with a debit card. So you're completely outside of the, the fiat currency banking system with Bitgold. Anybody with a little bit of technical knowledge can uh, set up a Bitcoin account, or I'm sorry, a Bitcoin account, and uh, and then spend and receive Bitcoins without um, any reference whatsoever to J.P. Morgan Chase or um, you know Citibank checking account or even PayPal or um, a, a regular credit card. You know, you you have completely left all of that behind, and. Um, you know, th- this is happening on right now an extremely small scale in the, in the scheme of things, but there's no reason why it couldn't ramp up from here and become a more important part of the global economy. And what that will do to um, the the current central bank dominated fiat currency money system is, uh, it, it, you know, it's interesting and we've never been here before, so we can't say with certainty how this progresses. But I do have one question for you, Trace, because one of the things that, that, uh, that, that strikes me as I see these things growing is that uh, at some point the empire is going to strike back. You know, why are governments not just going to um, regulate Bitcoin out of existence when they finally decide that it's an actual threat to them? Oh, tur- turning the tables, are you? Yeah, <laughs> I thought See, this I, was my show. <laughs> I want to learn from you. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, you know, I that's a that's a great question. A lot of people have asked it. I think at the end of the day, it comes down to the censorship resistant properties that Bitcoin has. It's a decentralized, distributed network, and no amount of violence will solve a math problem. With Bitcoin, you're dealing with precious numbers instead of precious metals. And and those precious numbers, you can create transactions that allow you to transfer value over a communications medium, uh, like the internet or even radio waves or whatever that communications channel would be. And so I think that's why 
Well, one is the censorship resistant aspect of it. You know, BitTorrent is illegal, but we saw how well that worked out because it's just not economically feasible to attempt to stop it. But two, uh, we are already seeing the empire strike back. Uh, the New York bit license, for example, uh, re- attempting to regulate Bitcoin exchanges, cryptocurrency exchanges. Uh, we're seeing regulation some jurisdictions being very friendly, like the Isle of Man, uh, which have passed uh, regulations that are very friendly to the cryptocurrency industry, while uh, and Texas, while others like New York are, are not so friendly. And so I think any time we have a technological innovation, there are going to be the innovators that drive the human race forward. Whether it's the Bill Gates or the Steve Jobs, whether it's uh, the Galileos, whether it's the Isaac Newtons, uh, who developed the gold standard, by the way, and Copernicus, who wrote a whole bunch of uh, treatises on interests. And so it becomes a question for society as we move from this economic to social to political to geopolitical to financial crisis. It becomes a question for society. Are we a pro-heliocentric theory society? Are we a pro-Isaac Newton society, or do we want to burn witches at the stake in order to protect entrenched interests? Are we a pro-Uber society? Are we a pro-Airbnb society? Are we a pro-internet and blog society? Or do we want to privatize the gains and socialize the losses and prop up old obsolete businesses like newspapers and radios and taxi commissions, etc.? And at the end of the day, I think that human ingenuity... Human innovation uh, is going to win the day, and those entrenched interests are already beginning to see that. Uh, Jamie Dimon, he's already written in his annual report that Silicon Valley is coming, and he's he said, you know, the Bitcoin guys, they want to eat our lunch. Well, yeah, guess what? We do want to eat your lunch because there's trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars at stake uh, with this financial innovation. And yeah, it's going to uh, the the old entrenched interests with their political machinations are going to try to mount whatever attacks they can. But at the end of the day, we we like we we like innovation. We like having cars and jet airplanes instead of crawling around in the mud in the swamps. We like calculus and and heliocentric theory and things like that. So you know, I I think that it's it's definitely a big issue for humanity in general. It gets to the core of the values that we espouse, and and that's you know I think I think we're going to see that play out as this crisis gets worse and worse because it's going to it's hitting people in their pocketbooks and that's what mobilizes people for political action. You know I've got a, a Bitcoin chart here. And there's a huge spike right around the time of the Greek crisis in, in transactions. So in, in Greece, people got that. You know, when their bank accounts were locked down, um, they turned to Bitcoin. And um, I, I think that's a really interesting example of what could happen in the future as, as crisis spreads around the world. Yeah, we, we saw that with Cyprus. We saw it with Greece. Every time China kind of happens. I mean, I don't know how many of the actual people in these countries are turning to it or if it's people in other countries that are looking at Greece and being like, you know what, I need some Bitcoin because if they shut the banks down for three weeks, I want to at least be able to transact and buy and sell food instead of being limited to 40 euro withdrawal at the ATM. Uh, yeah. I want insurance. You know, gold, Bitcoin, it's insurance against this collapse of the debt uh, 
fiat currency fractional reserve banking system, uh, yeah, you know, I want insurance to protect myself. Now, one last thing um, that, that's really striking about what's happening lately is that uh, some of the, the big companies like, like Citibank, for instance, and IBM are both working on their own versions of um, cryptocurrencies. You know, they're, they're using a blockchain technology to, uh, to develop something that they can use for international trade. Is that a, um, a threat to the concept of cryptocurrency as you envision it, or is it um, um, a positive addition to that market? I think it's actually a very positive addition uh, because, you know, cryptocurrency might be a misnomer because currency is just one application of blockchain technology, and we're going to see, you know, thousands of applications of blockchain technology. Uh, IBM doing little experiments with their own intranet as opposed to experimenting with the internet, uh, you know, it's fine. You know, they're working on networking and protocols and things of that nature, but you know, Bitcoin will likely be the worldwide ledger. It will be the internet. And with sidechains innovations, uh, those will be able to function like intranets. And so, you know, everybody's kind of getting familiar with the new technology right now, but I don't think it's really a threat to Bitcoin in general because there are a lot of, there's seven different individual distinct network effects taking place all at the same time entrenching Bitcoin uh, into that spot as the eighth uh, transaction layer for the internet. Uh, and so, you know, I think, I think that it'll, it'll retain that dominance. I mean, even 20 years after the email protocol got solidified, we're still using the email protocol SMTP, even though it's vastly inferior compared to other uh protocols that have been developed and it's because everybody else uses email protocol you know so these network effects are very very strong okay the transactional layer for the internet i like that <laughs> yeah it's uh yeah. i mean it, it's fascinating because we've never seen anything like bitcoin before it's it's truly uh an extremely complicated piece of technology and very few people i think can even comprehend or understand understand it because it is so vast uh, and, you know, another thing is look at the size of our technology companies. Google, Apple, you know, 400 billion market cap, 500 billion, five, 600 billion market cap. Goldman Sachs only has a 90 billion market cap. Deutsche Bank's only 40 billion. Barclays is only 30 billion. If you take all the big banks combined, their market cap is smaller than Google's. And I think what we're going to see happening is the big tech companies have now turned their howitzers on Wall Street, and they're not just going to creatively disrupt financial services. They are going to completely obliterate the entrenched interests that do not proactively begin to implement blockchain technology into their business processes and into the way that they do business. Uh, and it, you know... Look at what happened to the top line of our newspapers. Most of them are gone. They got obliterated. And that's what's going to happen to Wall Street if it doesn't get its act together and really begin to embrace technology and innovation and instead rely on their entrenched political elites to protect them. Because here it comes, you know. The Silicon Valley, the internet, they have disrupted every other major 
uh, realm of society except for our financial services. I mean, think about it. It is absolutely absurd and ridiculous that we can track a $5 package, but we cannot track a $500,000 wire transfer. We've been in the information age for 30 years. It is absolutely ridiculous how much trammeling has happened because of all the regulations around that industry. And the innovation's coming. The big boys are, are, are getting into this area to play. Uh, BitPay, for example, processes Bitcoin transactions for Microsoft. Uh, Facebook recently got a money service business license. Uh, they're coming to play and they're going to, they're, they're going to play for keeps. Okay. <laughs> you, you have an interesting 10 years ahead of you, Trace. <laughs> yeah. It, I mean, it's going to be exciting, you know, because we, bank, banks have been such an entrenched part of, of society. And yet most millennials don't like their banks. They don't want to use their banks. They don't even like the customer service that the banks offer because if the if you have to go through the customer service, then they've failed. You know that they, they haven't designed the product to be useful enough or intuitive enough, designed it how Apple might design something, and so you know it. it and, and it's just absolutely absurd. I mean, having been using Bitcoin now for six years, I mean, I had to make a payment last week. Uh, and the other person didn't accept Bitcoin. And so I had to actually go into the branch and initiate the transfer. And it was a, it was a chase account to a chase account. And the, the private banker like, okay, I did the transaction. I got it done. It should, it should show up in one or two hours. Well, you know, both of us were like looking in our bank accounts for it to show up and it didn't actually post even on their internal ledger on the internal Chase blockchain. It didn't even post for over 24 hours. I mean, that's absurd customer service. I have to go in and spend 35 minutes in the bank waiting to get a, tr- a transaction done when on Bitcoin you can do it instantaneously. You don't have to set up an account. You don't have to give them all of your documents uh, to, to prove your identity as if that does any good because they can't even protect your documents once they've got them. Look at all the cases of, of hacking breaches and identity theft. Uh, you know, and, and identity theft, it is solely a result of all of these financial regulations that require knowing your customer. We wouldn't have identity theft if there weren't that monetary incentive for the hackers to, to steal that, that data. And, and so, I mean, we, and that's another example of socializing the costs and privatizing the gains, uh, that people don't really realize. And so I think, I think we're going, we're in for a lot of disruption, a lot of innovation as the tech companies turn their howitzers towards Wall Street and begin firing away. And it's, it's going to be fun to watch. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Well, we, we've just about finished most of our time. Uh, did you have any other questions that you wanted to ask? I mean, I, I just kind of wanted to ask about, about finance and Wall Street and, and the markets and everything, but it seemed like you had a, a couple questions also. Well, uh, I, I, it's, I've been itching to talk to you about the, the questions I've had about Bitcoin for the last couple of years. So I'm, I'm glad we got a chance to do it now, Trace. And, uh, you know, we can talk about anything else you want if we have time. Otherwise, let's uh, let's do this again. We'll cover some more uh, investment related stuff later. Yeah, we'll definitely uh, we'll definitely do it again. Thanks so much for being with us. We've had John Rubino. He's the author of The Money Bubble, the 
collapse of the dollar and runs the popular financial website dollarcollapse.com. Thanks for being with us, John. Thanks, Trace. Enjoyed it. Be sure to get a copy of the free Bitcoin guide at freebitcoinguide.com. Got a question or suggestion? Record your voice at bitcoin.kn. Don't be shy. To help the show, share bitcoin.kn with friends, post about it on Reddit, and otherwise spam the interwebs. Your iTunes comments and five-star reviews are very important to us. Please continue tuning in to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast, where we release interviews with the top people in the Bitcoin world. Now take some choline and let that Bitcoin knowledge consolidate.